0: An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lucumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is Rick Funston. Rick is the chief executive officer of and Advisory Services, which provides governance, strategy, risk, operations, compliance, and fiduciary reviews for some of the largest asset owners in the world, including the California Public Employees Retirement System, the New York State Comptroller's Office, and the Trust Fund for the Federated States of Micronesia. Rick is Deloitte's forward national practice leader for governance and risk consulting to fortune 500 CEOs and companies in his spare time. He created the concept of risk intelligence and co-authored surviving and thriving in uncertainty, creating the Rick Intel- risk intelligent enterprise. It's cute. Rick, I could confuse Rick and risk together, which was published by John Wiley and Sons in 2010 in the interest of full disclosure. I've worked with Rick to review some of those mega-asset owners. That means I can personally testify to Rick's unique ability to size up a complex situation and to focus on what really matters. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, John. So I've worked with you on many reviews of huge asset owners with aggregate assets of more than a trillion dollars. You've never been an institutional investor you're not an MBA. In fact, I think you have a master's in social work. And if I've got this correct, part of your background is in training hostage negotiators, which isn't really what we investors think of when we think of risk management. One of the key audiences for this podcast are registered investment advisors and financial advisors. And in some ways, they face the same challenges. What I mean by that, Is their clients are lay people, fairly wealthy, smart people, similar to your boards that you deal with, but they're not investment experts. And they, these FAs and RIAs need to communicate the options to their clients so the clients don't feel roped into just doing one thing. And at the same time, aren't overwhelmed with data. What techniques have you used to overcome that, to let boards make informed choices? You mentioned something least to most, for instance. And do you think that would be a a, a useful paradigm for financial advisors and
0: RAs? Well, I think it would be useful, but obviously it's a challenge because it's easy just to present a lot of data and say, well, here it is, and here's what we're recommending as a result. And for them to gloss over Well, where are the insights in that? Again, I see a hierarchy of going from data to information, to intelligence, to insight. And I see too often, I think that they, they just simply present mounds of data. And there's really no insight or little insight that goes along with it in terms of what does it mean? And if I go back to what I said before about situational awareness, it's critically important. And if you're in a public safety function, it's also critically important if you're making major decisions that have major implications. What is really important? What's changing? And if it changes, what does it mean? And I'm not so sure that that's very well communicated. So I would suggest trying to Obviously, have the supporting data and the information, but try and distill that down into insights by using more uh, heads up displays, more dashboards that would say, once you've set a target, are we achieving it? And that's kind of easier to do. Are we achieving the expected performance? And that's fairly normal under certain circumstances. I just don't think it's as widespread as it could be. The other issue that you raise is the one of. What objectives are you actually choosing? And that is really the bigger strategic risk because that's where, you know, the game can be made or lost. And there's lots of examples of that. And maybe we'll get to that in a minute.
1: Sure. Let's pivot to it in less than a minute. Let's pivot to it right now. Let's talk about risk. You were the national practice leader at avoid for governance and risk and you invented the idea of risk intelligence. You literally wrote the book on it, surviving and thriving in uncertainty. So I know this sounds like an easy question, but I don't think it gets enough attention. What is risk?
0: Well, it's it's a great question. And obviously the answer will depend on who you ask. You ask a lawyer, you'll get a, a, a legal uh, definition of risk. Uh, if you ask an investor, you'll get an investor's perspective, an actuary, an actuary's perspective, and so on. One of the things that I did when I was writing, surviving and thriving was to talk to people who put their lives on the line. And so I talked to people like Mario Andretti combat pilots and submariners and uh, people who climbed Mount Everest, like uh, Jamie Clark and Esther Colwell, who was the first woman to climb the seven highest peaks in the world. And I asked them, what's your view of risk and they came back uh, and, and how they manage it. And they came back with kind of, with a very different set of answers than, than what I would have expected. And so two questions that I asked him is, you know, uh, how bad can it get? And how fast can it get that bad? And every one of them looked at me and laughed and said, oh well, yes, it could get very bad, very quickly. And I said, and how do you take into account probabilities? And the answer was they didn't. If it could get bad, then the question was what could go wrong? And what were the things in that, that they could control and, but the risk is not the cause of the loss of life or limb or perhaps assets. It's the effect. And so today, the problem that I have is, is that too many risk assessments don't really focus on the risk. They focus on possible causes. So. Risk to me is the kind of the potential for an unacceptable difference between what you expected to occur and what actually occurred regardless of the cause. So that's my definition of risk. And I think there's kind of two elements to it. One is the strategic element, which is what did you expect to occur? Well, it, strategic risk is the risk associated with the nature of your enterprise and the objectives that you choose. So. The strategic risk is in choosing the wrong objective. And typically that, uh, in, in, for public companies is failing to take enough risk, i.e. Innovate. So like playing it safe, look at Kodak, they decided not to go digital because they didn't want to cannibalize the film business. Blockbuster didn't want to switch to the DVD format. And they also had two opportunities to buy Netflix for 50 million bucks and they turned them down. So, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica didn't want to, uh, invest in the internet until it was too late. So generally, I think the strategic risk is a failure to challenge your fundamental business assumptions and failure to take enough risk in innovating. So obviously the risk varies with the nature of the enterprise, but that's kind of the first piece. But the second piece is operational risk. And I can go on with that if you like.
1: Sure. Let's, let's talk about operational risk for a moment. So I am going to see if I understand what you said. So for someone like Mario Andretti. The operational risk obviously is crashing and dying, right? And what you're saying is what we will tend to do is say, well, the brakes could fail, you could have human failure, you could get crashed by another car and you make a list and we call that risk management. What would Mario Andretti consider real risk management against dying from a crash?
0: Well, my takeaway from my discussions with them was first of all, if you're going to be in the business of formula one racing, there's a certain set of risks that goes along with that. And you need to be prepared to accept that. Almost all of his peers died in competition. So I was particularly interested in finding out what made him different. How did he survive when the others didn't? And sure, it, uh, the interesting thing is, of course, there's all kinds of causes of risk and I don't get me wrong. I don't want to e- underemphasize the importance of control and in fact, all the professional risk takers that I talked to were control freaks. They wanted to control the heck out of everything that they could possibly control, they did not want to put their lives on the line to say uh, on the basis of luck and let's see what happens. So if they knew that there was a problem uh, with the machine, they wanted the brakes checked, they want everything double, triple, quadruple checked, right? But then once you get into the situation, then Mario told me that The key to his survival was knowing his limits and staying within his limits, right? He would push the machine to the edge of its performance, right, but not go over now. Where is that line? Well, only somebody with years and years of experience can really tell you where that line is. But that was a line and he knew where it existed. Jamie Clark told me the same thing. Esther Caldwell told me the same thing. You have to know your limits. You are constantly trying to extend your limits through trading, through better equipment, of equipment improvements, and so on. And of course, in in Formula One racing now, so many factors are designed now to have the vehicle be a protective capsule around the driver. So there's obviously this equipment design issues and so on, but fundamentally, when it comes back down to the operator, who's behind the wheel and what intelligence are they applying to know how far to to push their limits? Because when I asked Jamie Clark about it, and I mentioned the concept of risk intelligence, he said, well, who wants to be risk stupid? Right. And he described several instances when which he had been risk-stupid because he had ignored the warning signs and the limits and, you know, very candid fellow. And that's the other thing too, is that these people are brutally honest with themselves and with their teams. The last thing you can do is have someone trying to cover up something, uh, a mistake uh, because they don't want to admit to it. So I think brutal honesty about the factors, controlling the heck out of everything you, you can possibly control and leaving as little as possible to chance, but obviously that's limited by your resources. And then once you're out there, then you gotta do it. For
1: an organization, how do they set those limits? How do they know what the limits are? Do they serve anything? things? Do they look at peers? Do they tie it to their strategic business plan? Very often I get the feeling that the risk department somehow is separate from the strategic plan of the organization. And I always wonder about that because as you say, what are you managing the risks for as opposed to some abstract normative version of risk control? So how do you tie those together?
0: Well, first of all, The problem that I have with conventional risk management is that they separate performance and risk. They start talking about, you know, first of all, yes, they do talk about objectives and the risk is anything that can uh, affect the achievement of your objectives, either positively or negatively, but that's not the risk. The risk is you don't achieve your objective. So as soon as you start talking about risk as separate from performance, you immediately, it's like the Larson cartoon that has the two deer standing in the woods. Remember that one of them's got a big bullseye on his chest. The other one turns to him and says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal, right? The, The problem is, is as soon as you start to identify risk as being something separate, you put that bullseye on somebody's chest and it starts to make it irrelevant and theoretical. Whereas when you're talking to a Mario Andretti or anybody else, the performance and the risk are inseparable. So that's the number one issue for me that's a problem is that Performance and risk are are inseparable and that what we typically would call a risk assessment these days is actually a cause assessment, which is important because you're trying to identify what's the most important thing you can do something about with the resources that you've got, either for the things that are within your control or the things that aren't and how do you influence that and improve your agility and resilience. But that's the focus of it. The risk is you lose life or limb or you lose your assets. That's the risk. Right. And there's only, there's a kind of a finite, um, example of that. Whereas when you start dealing with potential causes, they're, they're infinite. And then you start the compounding it by, well, how likely do you think it is? And the problem with likelihood is it's anybody's guess if you don't have an established cause effect relationship. So you can then any kind of subjective assessment of likelihood is bound to result because of bias in either an over or an underestimation of uh, its probability and the related exposure. Take for example, the World Economic Forum in 2020, they received a report in January that told them that infectious diseases was something that was certainly above average impact, but uh, significantly below average likelihood. Well, it's so much for expert opinion, right? That whole report basically missed the boat entirely and yet heat maps are used constantly based on, the, on a matrix of impact and probability. All I can say is exor- an exercise with extreme caution, and if at all possible, avoid it because probabilistic estimates will only get you into hot water. Good advice.
1: Given your background as having trade hostage negotiators and also understanding that people who really deal with risks, try to control everything they possibly can. Is there any advice you'd give from those parts of your life for financial advisors, RAs, or other people in business?
0: Yes, I I suppose there's a couple of things, and it's one that actually has stuck with me ever since that early experience. It goes back to an interesting thing was one of the first question that I asked the hostage negotiators, because typically it would be, there were certainly recurring situations, but What was it about this situation that was in common with other situations? And what were the most important things that you could actually control? Right? So they were holding hostages and they were armed. And this is not in the time of people wearing suicide vests and so on. And, uh, it's really a question of if they wanted something, what could you control and what were you willing to give them? So this whole notion of what are the factors that you actually have control over? You could give them food. You may be able to give them uh, medication, drink, alcohol, whatever. In exchange for, for example, for a hostage. And I'm not saying that the same rules would apply today, but basically what you wanted to do, your goal was to have the, uh, hostage takers release the hostages and put down their weapons and surrender themselves. That's the objective. So what are all the things that you can do to try to control that would lead to that? And the other thing too, is back to the least to most, what's the least you can do under the circumstances, which is keep them talking to the most that you can do, which is to an order to fire. So I think the same thing that applies if you put it in a corporate situation, you're often faced with options. People debate the various options sometimes about the pros and cons without looking at, well, what's the least we could do under the circumstances to what's the most. And when you start to put them in that kind of order of hierarchy of use of force or authority or expenditure of resources, time and energy. It becomes much more obvious what you should start with. There's other examples that I could give in terms of like a problem employee, which is given a problem employee, well, why did we hire this person, right? They're not performing. We should fire them. They might've been, well, when they first started, their supervisor was on maternity leave. They never really had a proper orientation. Seven people have gone through that job in the last year and a half. Is the job actually doable? And if you rearrange all of those things into an order, you start to get, well, Let's make sure the job spec is doable. Let's make sure we know what we're looking for. Let's make sure they get the proper onboarding and so on. So it's a way of thinking about virtually anything from least to most and focusing on one of the most important things that you can actually do something about. Those are two principles that I apply to almost everything I do today.
1: Let's move on to a couple of shorter answer questions. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about? What are you working on?
0: Well, there's two things. I'm working on a paper for a very large professional organization on a governance framework, that governance framework is based on concept of powers reserve to try and simplify and streamline the way boards think about their job and how they can govern effectively. Yeah. So I'm very excited about that. And on the other hand, personally. I'm uh, trying to get back into photography, which has been a passion of mine for years and years. I continue to fail at that, but it just drives me to keep uh, trying to figure out how to do better at it. So those two things are kind of occupying me at the moment.
1: What type of photography portrait, street, landscape, abstract?
0: Yes. My problem is right, if I could choose one thing, I'd probably get good at it. But I say, oh, and that looks nice. Let's do that. Like, so I, I did underwater photography. Then I, I was just in Italy. So I was doing landscape photography, but part of that, I was doing street photography and abstractions and uh, all of the above. So we, uh, you know, if I had a focus, I'd get better, but I just enjoyed the process, I guess, as much as anything.
1: What music do you like?
0: Well, I'm guilty again, of the same thing. I'm pretty eclectic. I love the blues. I listen to the blues a lot going back to the twenties and the thirties and so on, which are so much of the foundation of, of modern music. Although a lot of people don't kind of recognize that. So I, I enjoy that uh, jazz and um, trying to develop a taste for classical uh, music, which um Struggling with, but obviously great music is great music regardless of the genre. And so I can pretty much listen to anything as long as I think it's good.
1: What are you reading right now? (laughs) There's
0: a really interesting book written by a fellow by the name of Edward Wilson, who is a, a 90 year old naturalist who has written 35 books, largely having to do with ants. And so it's kind of about the, the ant world. And uh, that's one that I'm reading because it has really nothing to do with anything other than the, the miracle of the diversity of uh, life that exists on the planet. He shows us some very interesting little factoids, like the total weight of ants on the planet is equal to the total weight of the human population. There's a lot of ants. So that's one. And then another one I'm reading on a completely different topic is Beyond Biocentrism by Robert Lanza which is a, an intellectual exercise, and <laughs> which I'm not sure I'm up to, but I'm trying that one too.
1: What's the one fact or belief you wish
0: everyone knew? Well, I, I can't say that there's one, but I, I, all I can do is give you my, my favorite quote of all time uh, of five things, life short, art long. Opportunity fleeting, experience misleading, judgment difficult. And that to me just sums up the kind of the whole of human existence and the challenges that we face because whatever the art is, however long you study it, the more you study it, the more you realize, the less, you know, opportunity is indeed fleeting. In fact, uh, I've rarely seen opportunity actually knock. It actually tries to sneak by quietly in the street at night. And that experience misleading because whatever you've learned that worked in the past won't necessarily work in the future because things are constantly changing. And that's what makes judgment difficult, which of course leads us full circle back to governance, which is how do you make informed choices given all of the above?
1: And a great place to end. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lucumnick. And our guest today has been Rick Funston, head of Funston Advisory Services, formerly national practice leader for governance and risk at Deloitte, and the CEO Whisperer of Choice for many of the largest asset owners in the country, as well as for a number of Fortune 500 CEOs. Rick, thanks so much for being here today.
0: Thank you, John. You're very welcome. I I enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, We'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.